Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of James? We'll be in James chapter 3. James chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 18. One of my favorite passages, a passage about wisdom. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, says this. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Make your name holy in this time and place now. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. This text that we just read was so striking to me when I first really read it. How it talks about wisdom is so different than how I once thought about wisdom. We can tend to think about wisdom as about the thoughts and the mind, but here it says wisdom is about our conduct and our actions. We can think of wisdom as intellect and smarts, but here he says it's about virtues and dispositions of the heart. Of course, he acknowledges that it involves understanding. He says, who is wise and understanding among you, which connects it to our more common view of wisdom. But that's not where he places the emphasis. The emphasis he places on godly wisdom is on dispositions of the heart and the ways we act. Like when he says the wisdom from above is pure, impartial, sincere. See, those are dispositions of the heart. And then he says it's peaceable, gentle, merciful, Those are ways that we act. So wisdom is less a way of thinking as a way of being. It's an orientation toward life and reality and others and uh, and understanding and an attitude that emanates from the core of, of your being, that shapes and colors everything you do, the way you carry yourself, the impression you give, the tone you set, the general quality of your presence. This is so important for us to grasp because most of our life is lived from resources that aren't presently reflected on in our minds. We aren't usually applying intellectual principles, but instead just acting out of the overflow of who we are. We make so many decisions, even down to the words we choose, without accessing information or rules. We just respond to situations out of our instincts and intuitions. So what governs those times where there's no rule book? Wisdom is an understanding deep enough to shape our dispositions and our desires, as well as our decisions and our responses. So we need wisdom the way James talks about wisdom, the wisdom from above. 
And what we see about this wisdom is that it is incredibly winsome. It's warm and welcoming. It's light in the darkness. And this text has become one of the main things I think about when I think about what I want the shape of my life to be and the shape of the people in this church. It's my prayer for myself and for our church. I don't have small desires for us. I have high hopes for you all that we will be becoming sages here, men and women of wisdom and deep understanding to whom others come for help and for insight and for clarity and for peace. I long for whenever and wherever people look in this church in their times of crisis and conflict and sin and suffering, when they receive counsel, I long for it to be godly counsel, wise counsel. That outsiders as well, will, will, the lost and the searching will search us out because there's a warmth and welcome to our wisdom that is inviting and peaceful rather than off-putting and intimidating. I long for us to be wise People who have a deep understanding, humble curiosity, penetrating insight. People who are undeceivable in our discernment, loving in our thoughtfulness, and God-honoring in our prudence, so that we may be sheep in the midst of wolves who are as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, the way Jesus commanded us to be. His apostle Paul picks up that teaching with slightly different language in Romans 16 when he says, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. In the worldly way of thinking, pure and innocent people are naive and childish. They can't be wise because they haven't really lived. They haven't experienced the kinds of things you need to experience to make you really understand the way the world works. But you do not need to practice even an ounce of sin to be truly and deeply wise. Jesus proved that to be true. You don't need to be a hardened cynic or a worldly traveler or even have a high IQ to be truly wise. You need a deep understanding of the greatest realities. And when I say deep, I mean deep in you that they actually sink into you so that they're not just acknowledged on a surface level but that you see how they connect to all of life and how the truth brings order to reality. Not so much that you master the truth, but that you are mastered by the truth. One of my favorite authors is uh, G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote a, a series of short uh, stories about a, a small town priest who cr solved crimes named Father Brown. And uh, he solved all these crimes that baffled the police. And there's this very smart intellectual investigator who kind of looks down on Father Brown because he's kindly and simple. But he's always solving these crimes because he has spent so much time with people and with God and, and that he has a depth of understanding about the world and about humanity as well as a distinctly Christian empathy with criminals, as well as a longing for justice. He's truly wise. And, and Chesterton, when he wrote those stories, he influenced another author named Agatha Christie, who wrote about another unlikely crime solver named Miss Marple. And she's described like this, I love this, an elderly spinster, sweet, placid, 
Or so you'd think. Yet her mind has plumbed the depths of human iniquity and taken it all in a day's work. She has lived all her life in the little rural village of St. Mary Mead, and it's extraordinary. She knows the world only through the prism of that village and its daily life, but by knowing the village so thoroughly, she seems to know the world. And what I love about Father Brown and Miss Marple is that they're not worldly or what we think of as sophisticated, but they are wise. Because wisdom can be learned and unlocked through common, ordinary experience if our eyes and ears are open to it. And it can be given to us if we are humble enough to receive it. And so I want to start with a definition of wisdom. I want, I want to do it in a way that can cover both ways that the New Testament talks about wisdom because it's almost, it's almost equally talked about in positive and negative terms in the New Testament. When James says there's a wisdom from above, the clear implication is that there's a wisdom from below. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about both kinds of wisdom. He says, So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So you see how there's two wisdoms that he talks about. So when trying to define wisdom, we should have a definition that applies to worldly wisdom as well as heavenly wisdom. And I think that's exactly what James shows us. And what we can understand from this passage is that wisdom is an understanding of reality that leads us to become the kind of person we want to be and achieve the kind of things we want to achieve. And you could see how there could be a worldly version of that, couldn't you? Because if you want to be powerful or rich or praised by men, well, worldly wisdom is having a deep enough understanding of things to achieve that. But if you want to be like Christ and sow a whole harvest of righteousness by making peace, if those are your aims, then you need the wisdom from above. You need to have a deep enough understanding of yourself and of God and of reality that you become meek and pure and full of good fruit and sincere. This is what Paul tells uh, Timothy. That, this is why he tells Timothy that Scripture is able to make you wise unto salvation. See, wisdom for salvation. Wisdom is a deep enough understanding that takes you where you need to go. And a part of what I want to do with this series of messages that I'm beginning is to see how a true and deep understanding of reality leads us to become a certain way and act in certain ways. So we'll be immersing ourselves in this short text through the month of July, meditating on it, trying to really get a grasp on the wisdom from above. Some of you may want to memorize this passage over the next four weeks. I'll have my outlines along with some discussion questions for community groups available on our website. And as we think about the wisdom from above, we ought to realize, I love that, that phrasing, the wisdom from above. We ought to realize that wisdom can come to us from above only because God came down to us from above and became wisdom to us. That's exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. After he says God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, he says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Jesus is the wisdom from above. And with that in mind, I've slightly rewritten this passage in James that we'll be focusing on. I know that's kind of uh, risky to rewrite scripture, but I wouldn't have done it if it weren't true. Uh, uh, I put, put Jesus in it. So I'll, I'll put it on the screen so you can follow along. It says this, Jesus is the wise and understanding one among us. 
By his good conduct, he showed his works in the meekness of wisdom. He had no bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in his heart. And never did he boast and be false to the truth. For he is the wisdom that comes down from above. In contrast to the wisdom that is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But Jesus is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, and reasonable. He is full of mercy and good fruits. He is impartial and sincere. And Christ has sown a harvest of righteousness in peace by making peace. It is Jesus who shows us what true wisdom is. And he also shows us that that so-called worldly wisdom upon closer examination is not really wisdom at all. Because it only leads to short-term payoffs. Remember how I define wisdom. A, a kind of understanding that, of reality that we are made into the kind of people that we want to be and achieve the kind of things we want to achieve. Well, even the, the most worldly and defiant people don't want to be damned. And the most power-hungry person in the world doesn't want all of his efforts ultimately to amount to nothing in the scope of history. And that's where worldly wisdom takes you. Only the wisdom from above can lead to the real kind of life that we deeply long for. And only the wisdom from above can lead to fruitfulness that lasts for eternity. So Romans 1 says of those people who follow the wisdom from below, claiming to be wise, they became fools. Why? Because they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him. And they instead became futile in their thinking, he tells us. Do you know what futile means? It means ineffective and pointless. Paul says that honoring God as God and giving thanks to him is the only way of thinking that is not ultimately futile. There is a wisdom from below that seems wise only from an incredibly short-sighted vantage point. And then there's the wisdom from above that is truly wise, from the better vantage point of eternity. And in Jesus, we can have that wisdom. And of course, the wisdom Jesus gives us looks a lot like the wisdom Jesus himself displayed when we read about him in, in the Gospels. His way of thinking and being and acting was both weird and wonderful. When I, mean, when I say uh, weird, I mean that it was different than what people were used to. And when I say wonderful, I mean that difference was a breath of fresh air. It was a blessing. He had a weird and wonderful wisdom. And I long for us to be a weirdly and wonderfully wise church. Jesus had a distinct and clear and nuanced perspective that didn't quite fit. And he, he united people even as he upset people. And he was courageous and kind. And he had the courage to be kind to the kind of people it wasn't cool to be kind to. He had perspective from another world with vastly different priorities. And he was thoughtful in both meanings of the word, and that he was mindful of others' needs and he was reflective and clear in his views. So many people are muddled in mind and passively responsive to their environments, but Jesus calls us to clarity and intentionality, to humility and courage and to the wisdom from above, which he himself brings us as we look to him and trust in him. So what does this wisdom from above look like Whenever we have it, What's, how is it expressed? That's what we'll be unpacking. And the first thing that James says about it 
is that it's expressed in meekness. He says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you, by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. He doesn't say display your wisdom by debating others and winning arguments or by asserting all of your opinions. He doesn't say display your wisdom by boasting of all that you've accomplished. He says that, the wis- that wisdom is seen in, in the good conduct of meekness. And meekness is an expression of humility. Humility and meekness are, are twin realities, kind of like uh, arrogance and boasting. Like, er- like boasting is how you see arrogance. Well, meekness is how you see humility. James says you display wisdom by meekness. It's the outward expression of an inward disposition, that of humility. Humble wisdom, it reminds me of this thing called do-nothing farming uh, that a Japanese farmer and philosopher came up with. He, he went against the established customs of rice farming in Japan, and he decided to just pay attention to how things work without any intervention. And he said he was inspired by an empty lot full of grasses and weeds and how productive that was. And so he farmed without flooding the fields. He just threw seeds on the ground when they would kind of naturally fall. He didn't use fertilizer, but just grew ground cover and threw stalks back on top when he was done. And he just kind of had to do everything at exactly the right time when it would naturally happen. And his farm became more productive and more sustainable than neighboring farms. And since he was a philosopher, he he drew all kinds of philosophical conclusions from this, many of which I like. But where he ultimately lands, I think, is missing the mark because he says this. All of human effort is meaningless. Humanity knows nothing at all. There's no intrinsic value in anything. And every action is a futile, meaningless effort. And now that's him speaking against the arrogance of worldly wisdom that turns out to be largely futile a lot of the time. And I agree with his critique, but I disagree with his conclusion. Because rather than his technique showing us that we know nothing at all and our efforts are futile, I think it actually proves that when we humble ourselves, and slow down, and watch, and listen, rather than blindly imposing our wills and arrogance, then we can gain a truer and better wisdom that can make our efforts more fruitful. In other words, humility is a mark of true wisdom. Humility is also a key to discernment. Because so much persuasion out there is designed to arouse our pride through our desires and our sympathy and our anger and to capitalize on what we want to believe. And if we lack humility, we will not question ourselves and what we want to believe. It's easy to deceive people if the lies are in service of their preferred way of thinking about things. Because people are proud and want to be right. But if we want to be truly wise, We need humility, the kind of humility that makes us quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to anger, as Aaron read for us this morning. And humility comes from a deep understanding of reality. So the question that I want to answer this morning is, how does a true and deep understanding make us humble and meek? What do we need to understand if we want to have what James calls the meekness of wisdom? What are we missing or misunderstanding if we're proud? I want to point to four things. The first thing is everything is gift. Nothing you have or are came from you. 
If we ask, why would the wisdom from above make us humble? Well, the first and most obvious thing is that it's from above rather than from within. If you begin to think that you are wise because of yourself, you don't have the wisdom from above. If your wisdom puffs you up and inflates your ego, you don't have the wisdom from above. If you think your wisdom is the result of your own elevated intellect or your own effort, that's not the wisdom from above then. The wisdom from above is from outside of you and comes to you. And because it is wisdom, it allows you to see the truth about its source. And so because we know that we have it only as an undeserved gift and by the grace of another, we are humbled. The wisdom from above humbles us because it removes our delusions of grandeur by revealing that the source of all good things is from God alone. You may think you've earned something by your hard work, by your good decisions. Well, where did your ability to work hard come from? Or even your brain to make those decisions and your education and the opportunities that arose around you, like being born in a particular country or in a particular time. Did you do that too? If, if you see deep enough into reality, in other words, you start to see any ground for boasting dissolve under your feet. This is why James says, starting in the second half of verse 14, do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above. To boast, in other words, is to be false to the truth. So boasting has no place in the wisdom that comes down from above. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, a demon is writing to a younger demon about how to lead a person astray. And there's this one letter that he writes in that book that I think about a lot, uh, where the older demon tells the younger to capitalize on the human's irrational tendency to make claims of ownership. He starts with time. He says, you must guard in his mind the curious assumption, my time is my own. He let him have the feeling that he starts each day the lawful possessor of 24 hours. Then anything demanding his time from his job or his religious duties or even a talkative, unexpected guest will anger him because since he feels like his time is his own, he'll feel like it's getting stolen from him. And then he says this is a delicate task because the notion is so absurd. He says a man can neither make nor retain one moment of time. It all comes to him by pure gift. He might as well regard the sun and the moon as his own. And here's the part I think about all the time. Let me read it to you. And remember, when he says enemy, he's talking about God because he's a demon. He says, also, in theory, he is committed to total service to the enemy. And if the enemy appeared to him in bodily form and demanded that total service for even for one day, he would not refuse. He would be greatly relieved if that one day involved nothing harder than listening to the conversation of a foolish woman. And he would be relieved almost to disappointment if for one half hour in that day the enemy said, now you may go and amuse yourself. Now, if he thinks about this assumption for a moment, even he is bound to realize that he actually is in this situation every day. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying if Jesus showed up to you right now in bodily form and asked you to do something for him, you'd say, anything, Jesus, what? Anything. And then he said, and then if he said, okay, I want you to kindly engage an unexpected guest in conversation and love them and listen to them, you would say, that's it? Definitely. And you wouldn't expect or probably even want any time to selfishly amuse yourself that day, would you? 
And what Lewis is saying is if you really think about it and see the truth about reality, you actually are in that situation every day when God brings people into your path. You just aren't seeing it. You aren't seeing reality with the wisdom from above. True wisdom humbles us to see that nothing is your own. It's all God's. That's the first and humbling thing to understand. The second realization that brings humility is your own insufficiency. You have to understand your finite limitations as well as your sin and your brokenness. There's all kinds of self-help therapeutic wisdom out there telling you that you're great and amazing and sufficient and worthy. But in reality, you're frail and fallen. And that doesn't mean you aren't valuable. But the wisdom from above recognizes the key distinction that your value and worth is not appraised like the value of a house. It is declared by God. You are loved because he has chosen to love you, not because you are inherently lovable. Apart from God, you are actually weak and unworthy. You are powerless in yourself, and when you are given even the tiniest bit of power, you mishandle it. Now, I know this goes against the grain of so much popular teaching, but it's important for us to grasp, not so that we feel bad and wallow in self-pity, but so that we, when we pursue purpose and empowerment, we reach for the only hand that can really supply it, not from some place from within, but to God. Otherwise, we're not going to be truly humble. And instead, we'll be full of pride and we'll fall into the three things this text tells us exactly not to. Jealousy, selfish ambition, and boasting. Jealousy is just failed pride because someone else has achieved what you hope to achieve instead of you. Boasting is pride that has achieved something, so it shows it off. And selfish ambition is just pride in motion, being motivated and driven by your own strength and for your own glory. But James tells us this is not the wisdom from above. Pride and the wisdom from below, it's kind of like a drug. Because drugs work by giving an artificial and a temporary feeling that ought to be supplied in another form and by different means. And then they require more and more use while causing more and more damage to your body and your life. At first you think, well, if I want to relax or be stress-free or have fun or whatever, why not just take the shortcut of this drug? I once listened to an interview with an addict that said when he started taking pills, it was like he found the cheat codes to life. It seems to work great, but you're really poisoning yourself and setting yourself up for destruction in the long run. And pride is like that. It can lead to all kinds of success. It can drive you. It can even lead to spiritual success, like in the case of the Pharisees. But it's really poison that will lead you down a destructive and unstable path. The wisdom from above sees right through it and its lies, and it makes us meek. Psalm 37 tells us what meekness is at its core uh, because it says in, verse, in, in Psalm 37, verse 11, he says, the meek will inherit the land. But in verse 9, he says, those who wait for the Lord will inherit the land. So which is it? I think he's saying it that way because to be meek is to wait on the Lord to hope in his power and sufficiency rather than our own. The beginning of that psalm prescribes the meekness of wisdom like this. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. 
Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. In other words, don't be jealous. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. See, this is meekness. Committing your way to God in trusting faith and peaceful contentment. Because you see the truth about yourself, about him, and you recognize you need him. And this is the second humbling thing to understand. The third is the true value of things. What leads to meekness is to recognize the value of things outside of yourself. Most importantly, the value of God. That he is supremely valuable. And when you start to see things as they truly are, you see that there is a greater glory worth living for. Something bigger than you. Someone more worthy of your life than you are. But worldly wisdom and the pride wrapped up in it, it's a slippery slope. This is why James says in verse 16, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. He's saying it's a slippery slope because everything's out of order. What should be first is last, what should be last is first, and everything in the middle gets muddled up. And you miss the whole point of things. You miss That means you miss the deep joy of life, too, which is one of the sad things about it. Let me give you some examples. Like When you are driven to achieve the status of wealth and success, you end up undermining your own well-being and can't even enjoy it because you're always discontent and wanting more. And even in pride, the kind of music and food and hobbies and entertainment you like can become a part of who you want to portray to the world as the kind of person you want to be rather than actually enjoying those things. You see, you're not really enjoying those things, but just the attention and identity you think they're getting you. And when you pursue learning, always to apply it to others or to win arguments or always have to keep up on current events so you can be in the know and have to, so you're not out of the loop, you're missing the whole point and joy of learning and growing And when you serve other people only so they can serve you back or so that it makes you look good, you forfeit any reward, Jesus tells us. Pride and the wisdom from below leads to disorder, to everything being out of order and missing the whole point of things, to missing the whole point of life, which is God. He is what we are to live for. And when he is at the center of all our pursuits and desires and identity, everything starts to be put in the right order. And everything, and as we care about what value, what we, is most valuable in our life, we will value what God thinks about us above what other people think about us. But a part of that slippery slope of pride in, 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 in disorder is prioritizing what other people say about you above what God thinks about you. And there's a striking and really a sad example of this in a recent song by the secular singer Demi Lovato. It captures this in a a hauntingly honest way. It's not a wholesome song, so I'll change some of the bad words, but I think it's an important confession for us to hear. She says this, Look where I'm at. Look where I'm at. I'm living the life that I said I wouldn't. I want to go back. I used to call my mom every Sunday so she knew her love wasn't far away, but now I'm all messed up out in L.A., because I care more about what other people say. I used to not take chances with God's name, but it's been so long since I last prayed, and now I'm all messed up and my heart's changed, because I care more about what other people say. 
This song is so sad to me. Pride is both a prison and a poison. Where Demi Lovato is living the L.A. lifestyle she never thought she would because she cares so much about the perceptions of others. Well, there's so many religious people abstaining from that lifestyle for the exact same reason that she's living it. Because they care most about what people say. Just different people. Difference is they think they're pleasing God but they're really only pleasing their pride. And in Matthew 23, Jesus condemns the Pharisees' religion, and it's worth soberly soberly reflecting on sometime. He doesn't condemn their beliefs, but their practice of their beliefs. In other words, they had knowledge, but not wisdom. And he says in verse 5 and 6, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. And they love the place of honor at feasts and at the best seats at synagogue. Saying you can't hum, you can't be humble and meek if you don't have the wisdom to see that the approval of God is greater than the acclaim of men. The wisdom from above understands the true value of things and lives for what is most valuable. And this produces meekness because small acts of service are not despised as less valuable simply because they garner less recognition. But in wisdom, we know that they actually are recognized, right? By the one whose recognition we value most. And this is how the wisdom from above makes us meek. So we don't envy people who succeed, bad people who who seem to be so successful, because they aren't really achieving what we want to achieve, are they? Which is the approval and pleasure of our holy God. And those who are living for God, we cheer them on and support them without envy because we are valuing God and his pleasure and purpose is not just that we are the ones involved. So having the wisdom to see the true value of God orders our lives and makes us meek. And then in verse 11 and 12 of that same passage in Matthew 23, Jesus says this, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And this brings us to our fourth and final point of understanding that, makes us, that leads to meekness. For, the, for true Christian humility and meekness, there has to be that counterintuitive realization that Jesus was talking about. That the way we pursue greatness is by serving. The way we put ourselves first is by putting ourselves last. The way that we love ourselves is by loving others. And you can see why this wisdom has to come to us from above because it's not natural to us. But it is natural to someone. It's natural to the one who came down from above. The one who humbled himself and was exalted. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, he said. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. He redefined greatness for us. And Philippians 2 captures it so beautifully and succinctly in one of my favorite passages of Scripture. I once edited that passage into a poem that I called The Sonnet of the Sun. Let me read it to you. Though in the form of God, he did not count God equality as something to crave, choosing instead to empty himself out, taking on, taking up the form of slave, being born as man with heartbeat, and breath in this form humbled himself at great cost, embracing obedience unto death, even shameful, painful death on a cross. 
So God has highly exalted him now, and on him the name above all names bestowed, that at the name of Jesus will bow all knees in heaven, on earth, and below. Jesus Christ is Lord, every tongue will raise. To God the Father's great glory and praise. Jesus embodied the meekness of wisdom and the path to true greatness when he humbled himself and gave his life for us. He is the wisdom from above. Remember those four uh, wise realizations that humble us? Everything is gift. You are frail and fallen. God is supremely valuable. And the way to be truly great is to be a humble servant. Well, Jesus is the giver of all good gifts. He is the uplifter of the weak and the healer of the broken. He is the supremely valuable one worth giving your life to. And he is the one who humbly gave himself and served and sacrificed so that he could welcome you into his greatness. Trust in him and be wise. Let's pray. Our Holy Father, we thank you for the wisdom from above offered to us through your Son. We ask you now that you would give each and every one of us in this room a deeper understanding of you and your reality that we might become truly wise and be lights displaying your wisdom. And we know that the first step is that we humble ourselves before you. We acknowledge our need and your sufficiency, our weakness and your might, our sin and your holiness, but also your forgiveness and your power to unite us to yourself through Jesus. Give us faith to believe such glorious promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.